You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Dr. Gregory M. Glenn, President of Research and Development at Novavax, joins the Post to discuss the drug developer's COVID-19 vaccine candidate. Let's listen. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter here at The Post and author of the Health 202 newsletter. And I'm really excited about our conversation today. Uh, Novavax is a small biotech company in Maryland, but it's quickly becoming a formidable underdog in the race to get a coronavirus vaccine and vaccinate the world. Uh, Novavax recently demonstrated uh, in a late stage trial that it has clinical efficacy against several variants of the coronavirus uh, and also has a trial that is ongoing in the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, We have the president of research and development at Novavax, Dr. Gregory Glenn, with us. Thank you so much. For being with us, Dr. Glenn. Good to be here with you, Paige. So, of course, today we have great news about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which we know is going to be reviewed by the FDA on Friday, and that could potentially become our third vaccine. And then potentially great. next great. in line is your vaccine. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that vaccine and what differentiates it from the other ones that we've seen on the market so far? So our vaccine, uh, we we are making a vaccine that is called recombinant protein. So as you probably know, these viruses have a little uh, spike on the surface and the spike is involved, uh, is critical for the virus to infect a cell. So as you inhale a virus, it binds to a lung or nose cell and the spike is actually the, the, the you know, the, uh, the lock, the landing uh, piece that allows it to attach to a cell. It's very critical. So all the vaccines are targeting uh, this spike by making immune response to it. And, and what we've seen now very clearly is that's a good strategy. A year ago, we didn't know for sure if this would work, but it's working spectacularly as you as you can see. And what we do is we actually make the spike. What's different from us, say from um, uh, the mRNAs and the uh, uh, now vectors, the Johnson Johnson vectors, is we actually make the protein itself. Uh, and then we put this in a little particle. It's about the size of a virus, but it's just basically detergent or soap, if you will, where this particle is sitting. Now, when the immune system sees it, it recognizes it as, as something foreign and it mounts a very, very strong response. So I would say the hallmark of this recombinant protein making the spike um, and the immune stimulant we add to it is that we make a very, very strong immune response to a really small amount of, of the uh, protein. And that's important, really important. So because you get a very strong immune response, it should be highly protective and that we can talk later about our, our results. So that's been shown now. Um, and then uh, secondly, it allows you to make millions, billions of doses because it, it takes such a small amount of your, of your protein to, to effectively immunize a person. And finally, the way we make it, it allows its use as a, as a refrigeration project with product, which is you know the most common vaccines are simply bottles you find in a little white refrigerator at CVS, et cetera. And so we, we would be distributed in that very well-established, we call it cold chain, which is just refrigerated temperatures, not frozen. Well, and let's talk about results right now, actually, as you mentioned, um, you know, of course, we've seen high levels of efficacy in the 
Pfizer and Moderna vaccines in the in the 90 percent range. Do you have can you talk a little bit about the results that you've seen and whether they're in that same range? So it's good to explain a little bit about the how we get to these trials. So, you know, it takes it takes usually takes a year to plan trials of these size and magnitude and importance. So we're in a place where we don't have that time. So these trials were conceived of and planned in, in kind of the May, June timeframe. And one of the great risks we have in the trials is we don't know if we can collect enough cases to, to really statistically soundly demonstrate that the, the vaccines are working. So everyone was trying to, you know, think about where best to test it. And obviously, you know, looking at the world um, where there is disease. Uh, in the past, there's been many trials with, say, flu, for example, where people have had a very good vaccine, but they've gone out to do a trial and they just couldn't get enough uh, disease because it was a down year. So that was a risk. And so we went, we went out to South Africa, um, to uh, the UK and, and the US, and we were um, ex not expecting this to the degree we saw it. That is, the virus we knew would undergo some changes. But while we were doing our trials, particularly in South Africa and the UK, the virus evolved. And that's a, that's a, been a, that's a, it could be a potentially very large problem for us to, uh, you know, control the virus. Like flu, it's a, it's a virus that has a lot of the same features of flu in terms of how it infects, how it can evolve. And uh, so we have done, a very valuable experience experiment for the world by testing the vaccine without you know knowing that it would happen but it did happen it evolved right in the middle of our trials so that change allowed us to to assess how well our vaccine works against the strain that was most you know circulating mostly and still is uh in the world uh, uh, and a couple new strains so in the uk uk we had um about 50% of the viruses that our, that our volunteers uh, encountered was sort of what we call the prototype virus, the very similar to what evolved uh, from Wuhan. The other 50% had the new strain, which is you know big now taking over in the US, a variant. Uh, and so that UK variant was about 50% of our, of our vaccine. So overall, if you look at the average vaccine efficacy, it was 89%, which I can tell you as a vaccinologist, these numbers are just spectacular. But we were able to further subdivide out how it worked against the prototype strain, which reflects the spike protein we have in our vaccine, and then how it worked against the variant. And there, our vaccine had 96% efficacy against the, we call it the match, which is very much what the Moderna and uh, Pfizer vaccines were tested against the prototype strain. So, so we got into the camp of these extremely high efficacies with our vaccine, um, but we had the variant data also. And there, the variant data, we saw a, a sl slight decrease uh, uh, down to 86%, which is still very, very good, but it's showing us biologically that this, this evolution of the virus is, is important that we need to pay attention to. Now in South Africa, as we started the trial, the there was a new variant, and uh, it's um, it, it completely took over in South Africa. So more than 90% of the viruses we encountered there, or subjects encountered, were this new variant, and their vaccine efficacy was 60%. And so this is you know um, uh, really important to know that for the world. So we have a vaccine that's working really as good as anything, 
uh, when it's matched, uh, 96% efficacy. When we look at the, tri the, the evolution to the, this UK strain, and we understand a lot of this structurally, we see 86%. And when it really goes out you know, on a limb, if you will, through viral evolution, uh, it's 60%. So the other feature, the other big news in our trials, you know, we look at the placebo groups and we can tell something about just the, the, the virus attack rate uh, in the population uh, as well. And there, what we, what, we, what we were expecting in South Africa, they had a very large wave, very bad go with the uh, COVID disease in sort of the June, July, August timeframe. So much so, we thought there could be a very strong herd immunity. And so when we, when we looked at the people who had established uh, immunity from infection, it was quite high in our trial. When we looked at the people, we also had about half the people or more that did not have any uh, evidence of previous infection. But what really jarred us was that the attack rate, that is the amount of new virus infections was no different, which means that the previous infection had no effect on protecting people against the new infection. So that is the baseline that against which our vaccine was was you know being tested and we still had 60 percent efficacy so two messages you know the variants are really important it looks like infectious immunity may not cut it in terms of creating herd immunity and secondly our vaccine technology um, as i described to you earlier is in fact working even though the virus has evolved uh, from where we started with our with our spike protein so these are really for the world, for the vaccine community, well, these are really important findings. Well, that is indeed good news about the efficacy, but can you walk us through the timeline here? I understand that you're undergoing the trial in the U.S. Uh, potentially, you might apply to the FDA for emergency use authorization perhaps next month, but can you kind of lay out for us what you're looking at in terms of what happens over the next couple of months? Yeah, so so as you as you noted, we've started a big U.S. trial, and uh, uh, again, it's going to be, I think, extremely informative because the virus is changing. Uh, we've really done well in highlighting, uh, including recruiting um, people from minority populations where there might be some reluctance to to take the vaccine. So so we're you know committed there to establishing a really good safety and, and convincing profile of our vaccine for for Latinos, uh, African American, Native Americans, et cetera. So so that trial uh, last week we finished recruiting uh, 30,000 uh, people in the US and Mexico and we're expecting that result uh, you know in in uh, uh, right at the beginning maybe of quarter two. So pretty soon and shortly thereafter we would be filing for what we call EUA or emergency use authorization uh, in the US. So we're thinking quarter two um, and then deployment, you know, can come fairly quickly. You may have seen that the FDA is really efficiently um, evaluating these packages of data uh, and providing uh, emergency use. Now, I would like, you know, to talk about the globe. Uh, we've had a global view, and um, so that's going to be important to, to us as a company as well. But the U.S., I think that we're talking about a quarter two uh, application for the emergency use authorization. And then I know a question that many Americans have, which is, did you observe any significant side effects from the vaccine in the trials that have been carried out so far? Yeah, so so um, that I think is another hallmark of our vaccine is the safety profile is very good. 
So it's a recombinant protein, uh, it's an adjuvant. Um, these things are, you know, traditionally have been used widely uh, in licensed vaccines. So that, you know, gives us a really good sense of, of how it might, how well, you know, would perform that way. So look, all vaccines are gonna give some local arm soreness and when you make an immune response, you can feel off. So we see that, but I think compared to some of the other vaccines, it's, it's much more muted with, with our vaccine. So, and especially in older adults, uh, really very quiet. Um, and that's important. So you should know, people should know how much scrutiny uh, we give these vaccines. These, these are, the, the data collected around them are extensive. If you happen to enroll in a trial, which I would encourage you to try to do, um, you know, you, you get interrogated daily and, um, and visit, you know, uh, frequent visits. And a lot of the, the visits are about collection of, of symptoms, anything, you know, that you, you have. And so there's a really strong data set around people to prove that this is safe. Of course, things like hospitalization and, and uh, medical care, all that data is collected as well. So, and of course we're blinded, we don't know. But what, again, another thing I think should reassure people is that these trials are supervised by people that are outside the company, have no interest except the public, uh, you know, what good, and they evaluate in a unblinded fashion. They see everything we can't see. So we, we, they know whether or not these events are in the vaccinees or placebos, and that should be reassuring because they're looking for patterns that might be associated with safety. Now, that being said, you never get into a clinical trial without extensive evaluation and a sense of, of whether or not it would be safe. So we wouldn't even approach a human trial unless we thought these were very safe. If you looked at a vaccine vial, you'd be amazed. It's a little bottle of, of what looks like clear water. The amount of material we're talking about is, is five micrograms in our, in our case, which is exceptionally low dose. If you dried it out on the table, you couldn't see it. It's just an exceptionally small amount of material we're injecting, but it's very potent. It targets the immune system and we get a strong response with a small amount of material. So, and, and also, what about the distribution? You know, we know there have been some challenges with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines in terms of having to be stored in very cold temperatures. And then, of course, the shots being spaced out. Can you walk us through what you kind of see the distribution looking like? And then also, have you found that there is or do you believe there's a particular population of people uh, for whom this vaccine would be uh, particularly work particularly well? So yes, I think that that uh, as you can have seen, the logistics involved in vaccinating a, a national population are are really daunting. And I think, uh, my opinion, is a good job is being done, but it's just a huge task. Never been done. Nothing's been done like this across the globe, if you will. So, um, so you know, anything that can make that go smoother, easier, etc., is and it's really obvious that if you have a vaccine that uses normal refrigeration that that will will, will smooth things out. So um, I think we have, you know, some really something important uh, to add there. We're evaluating our vaccine in all these special populations. I expect that the vaccine will work well in old people and, uh, you know, other populations. We have people with a lot, of, a lot of what we call comorbidities in the trial. So we'll be able to make statements about that. We're expecting the vaccine will work really well. Uh, you know, throughout all those populations. Well, and I know that you all 
had some hurdles, uh, some obstacles as you were trying to get this U.S. trial together. Um, but now you've actually been able to reach your enrollment goals in a, in a quick amount of time. How were you able to do that? Well, thanks for asking that. I mean, we have a collaboration with the, the U.S. government, which has been really fruitful. Um, and also collaboration with the NIAID, the National Institute of L the NIH, essentially. And they had a network of, of trial sites, of in investigators. You know, these are people that, that have uh, extensive knowledge in terms of how to do a vaccine, vaccine trials. And frankly, they have to be convinced that, that you've got a good product for them to even join in. So, so this, we had day, morning calls every day at, at uh, 8.30 with the U.S. government uh, managers who are fantastic people, uh, with our contract research uh, group, with people executing on the trials. I cannot tell you how much, how, how frequent we talked to uh, everyone involved. These great, um, we had great dashboards of, of how the sites, we're working at 118 sites uh, in the U.S. and Mexico extremely complicated implementation and 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 you know with strictures on recruitment that were you know really actually quite challenging we'll say that we were able to collaborate with you know people like Howard University and uh, University of Maryland locally just to kind of illustrate the types of groups that that were were involved in this and that that allowed us to achieve our, our goals our recruitment goals of, of really strong diversity in the Latino population the African-American population, Native American, Asian-American. So, and, uh, you know, I think we have a, a super representation of the kind of people that will want to take the vaccine. Uh, and I would say that collaboration with the NIH, uh, the U.S. government and the company has, has been very fruitful. So I know that you, you said quarter two is sort of the aim for when you would apply to FDA for emergency use authorization, but can you be a little more specific about that? And I ask because, you know, there was a lot of talk last fall about how much time needs to lapse between the time when the trial is fully enrolled and how much time the recipients of either the placebo or the vaccine are observed and how many cases you need to, of, of coronavirus you need to see. Um, can you talk about that a little bit in terms of, I guess, the timing or the number of cases you need to see and when you'll be able to know that, okay, now we can go ahead and apply to FDA? That's a great question. So let me just walk you through how it works. So, you know, we give people uh, the vaccine regimen and then we start looking for whether or not they have infections uh, a week after their second dose, so day 28. So, um, and then essentially we're waiting to see, you know, people are out living their lives, um, waiting to see who gets infected and, and counting cases. So we don't really control um, the timing. So uh, we, we, we um, are in a situation where there's a lot of disease and also we're in a situation where the, the, the net, if you will, for capturing disease is very big. So 30,000 people is what we call overpowered. Um, you know, I would say in South Africa and the UK, once we started into that period where people were, were you know, could, could be a case, had gotten their doses, and now we're in the right time frame, uh, it took us about six weeks um, to, you know, to, to actually get a crew, the, the number of cases we needed. So, so then once you, once you know that, and so we don't know that, we get told by somebody who, because we don't want to uh, be unblinded in any way. Uh, once we're told that, then in the, in the case of the U.S., it's 72 cases we're looking for. 
then they will push a button uh, and that will start to they'll, they'll look at the data in a big database, clean it up, push a button and uh, we, we will know. So the timing is is frankly um, uncertain and it's one of the issues we've been facing you know with with all the trials. but one thing I would say is the UK data is very good. Uh, we expect to propose to the to the to the uh, FDA uh, that this data could be used as a basis for licensure there you know we'll see that trial and the South African trial are all conducted in a way that the FDA will take that data seriously and the UK potentially as, as what we call the pivotal data. That is, we lined up, FDA gave advice on how to do a trial, what success means, and that really was accepted by the, you know, the world, if you will, and so we're aligned up with, with uh, those success criteria in all of our trials. So would it be fair to say that April is, is a, a, a fair t uh, timeline for when we might be um, expecting yeah, you guys to yeah, file for you know, Quarter two. I just, you know, I can't really venture much beyond that. What I would say is you ought to think about this as not a sprint, but it's a marathon. This virus is not going to go away. We're going to need to boost. We're going to need to have a strategy for like we do with flu, where the virus changes. And we need we need to to uh, to be able to make that change in our vaccine. You may know this. Uh, we've already begun to work on a virus that that does the vaccine that reflects the virus seen in South Africa. I think that's really important. We expect to begin testing of that shortly as well. And at some point, the strategy is going to require boosting. And so I think that that all all together, you have to see this as a marathon. And we're at a critical juncture, you know, in implementation of vaccination, and and it's just not going to go away. So so uh, globally speaking. Um, you know, this vaccine will be, you know, we expect it to be deployed widely uh, because this is really, you know, affecting every country and it's going to persist. Novavax's vaccine is expected to be considerably cheaper than the one we've seen from Moderna. Why is that? Are the materials cheaper? Walk us through that. Yeah, I mean, so let's, you know, cost is something that depends on who you're talking to, but for, for just to, re, re, you know, re, uh, remember, People are going to get this vaccine for free, so it's really about cost of goods. So we live, we you know, we use a very small amount of antigen. That's one of the great things about our technology, is it's really potent. So the amount of material that goes into our vaccine is really small, um, you know. And that this just is important to think about the world. So we, as you may know, have commitments to global supply. We have we stand up we stood up manufacturing in the U.S. for the U.S. Uh, we also have manufacturers in the UK, in Spain. Uh, we have a very large plant which we were we were able to purchase in Czechoslovakia. Uh, we have a huge operation in India, uh, in Korea, and Japan. So those other other sites in the world are making vaccine for the world, and there's a very good strategy for helping, uh, you know, to to implement the distribution in the poorest countries, which I'm very proud of my company is because we we've always had a global view. We knew this was a, going to be a problem and you know places like South Africa where we work, this is completely ruining the economy. Um, so we need to have a strategy for getting our vaccine out to the rest of the world. It helps that we use a very small dose that makes uh, the cost of the goods really low and um, you know that's going to be important for uh, a lot of the countries, but we expect that the vaccine, you know, it's, it's going to be essentially provided by 
uh, government so funded by donors and uh, distributed to to the whole world and that's going to be a really you know gratifying thing to see and I think we announced some of the, the you know actual mechanisms by which uh, that would be distributed to to the rest of the world called COVAX and Serum Institute of India which is one of the was last year heretofore the only vaccine maker in the world is making billions of doses uh, they actually built a plant uh, dedicated to the manufacturing of the Novavax vaccine and they see this I mean they're very experienced in providing cost-effective vaccines to the world and so they see that our vaccine with its really small dose you know can do that and so that's um you know I think that's that's important to us as well so well and I you mentioned the Serum Institute of India and, and uh, I know your company is set to produce two billion doses a year starting the middle of this year who do you think will see most of those vaccines where are the dose is going to be going oh that's a great question so um uh yes that I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm the best one to answer that because how it gets distributed is, is pretty you know important but it's global so COVAX is a mechanism that both caters to uh, you know lower middle income lower income and high income countries but the, the vast majority are targeted for um, you know the, the, the other communities so that's a that's a big topic how the vaccine gets distri distributed and uh, um, I'm not the I'm not probably the best person uh, um, you know to, to talk about that but it is it is in place a COVAX mechanism there is there is a that's taking advantage of an infrastructure that exists something called uh, Gavi which has you know been very effective at distributing vaccines to you know throughout the world so it's a super complicated topic there's a lot of countries and uh, but I'm confident we're going to make enough that's sort of in my arena uh, to to uh, you know distribute about two billion doses. Well, and I know your company has looked at combining the coronavirus vaccine with the seasonal flu vaccine, na uh, Nanoflu, I think it's called. Um, do you think coronavirus vaccines will become a regular part of yearly flu boosters? Yeah, I do. I think as we've seen the you know in our data, the virus will evolve. That evolution is going to be important. It's going to be important to try to match that up with with the vaccines, and and we have the technology to do that very agilely. So our particular technology is suited for that. Last year, when the COVID started, the COVID epidemic started, we had just completed a pivotal trial with our with a flu vaccine. And this topic of virus evolution away from vaccines to a point where the vaccines were not working well, the flu vaccine was exactly what we were focused on. So our technology is uniquely suited to address that by creating a broad immune response. So last year in March, we finished, we announced a phase three pivotal trial with our new flu vaccine. It was fantastic. We met all of our endpoints and no one cared <clears throat> because the COVID you know, tsunami was approaching. So, so we have a basis for you know, combining these two very good vaccines and and uh, into an annual seasonal flu vaccine, and we've begun work on that already. But the our flu product is very advanced now. Our COVID vaccine has caught up to it, and it really makes sense to combine them as an annual seasonal vaccine to cover these viruses that really are just gonna, not going to go away. Well, and our try our time is drawing short, but I do want to ask you. You know, we're under a new administration, and they've continued some of the vaccine strategies started under the prior administration. They're also trying to do some new things in terms of distribution, uh, using DPA, etc. 
But any thoughts on what would be most helpful to your company in terms of what the Biden administration can do to help you, you know, get these vaccines, get through the trial, get approval, get them distributed? Well, to their credit, they reached out very early to us. We met with their their team. Um, they've been supportive, and I actually have seen no no blip in the very strong support we've had, you know, throughout the program. So that's been great. I think they're they also have a you know global view. Um, so that's also really a good thing. So we're you know we're we're seeing uh, every bit of this kind of support we had, which was good at the beginning, and and it's 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 still there and. Uh, it was really great to meet with their team. They brought in some great people. So um, I, I'm expecting uh, that that to just have been a smooth transition, you know, to the to the next year for us. So. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Glenn. Good, really good to talk to you. Thank you for your time. We'll stay tuned today because at 2 p.m. Eastern, my colleague Christina Passariello will host an important program uh, called Transformers Recovery, exploring the impact of the pandemic on digital integration, on education and manufacturing. You won't want to miss that. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.